Merry Christmas. I don't know if you saw the devotion that I put up last week that David was referring to. I was thankful, though, for some Christmas decorations here at the church, kind of get that Christmas vibe in the background. Someone said the only thing was missing was that I should have had a cat on my lap. So maybe in weeks to come, there'll be a cat on my lap, maybe a dog beside me. Maybe we'll start a little fire up here on the stage in the, in the background. We're not going to do, David mentioned this, what we typically do in December during Advent. Uh, instead, we're going to continue on with our sermon series. Normally, we would break from the sermon series that we are in to address the historical Advent themes of hope and love and joy and peace. This time, we're going to keep going. We're going to keep studying Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we will each week, starting today, we'll still draw out those historical themes. Today's theme is hope, and the text that we have in front of us today is certainly not short on hope. This will only be our third sermon in this series going through Ephesians, but We've covered 33 verses, and the reason we've covered so many verses in only three sermons is because as Paul wrote this, he wrote these 33 verses in three long sentences. So in his first sentence, you'll remember, which spanned at chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, Paul praised God for our salvation that he said was planned by God the Father, it was purchased by God the Son, and it is preserved by God the Spirit. In his second sentence, in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, Paul thanked God for the Ephesians, and then he asked God to give them knowledge. He asked God to give them knowledge of their hope in Christ, knowledge of their value in God's sight, and knowledge of the greatness of God's power toward them. And that brings us to his third sentence which is going to span in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. He has praised God, he has thanked God, he has petitioned God, and now he turns to the Ephesians to remind them that their salvation is by grace alone. May God help us as we read these words and illuminate their meaning for us so that we too would understand that our salvation, it's by grace alone. Let's pray and ask God for help. Our Father in heaven, 
We know that you have saved us so that we would praise you. And we know that we will not give you the praise that you deserve if we do not rightly understand our salvation. So thank you for inspiring our brother Paul to write these words, to make it crystal clear. And yet we need your help. So would you come now and would you help us to know you better, that we would love you more deeply. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. If you're using one of the church Bibles that you'll find in front of you, today's text, Ephesians 2, is on page 917. This is very straightforward, these verses. There is a section that describes who we were, and then Paul describes who we are. He was writing to the Ephesians, of course, not to us, but he was writing to the Ephesians as Christians. And so if you're here today as a Christian, then of course you take this to be true for you as well. So Paul's going to lay out who you were and then who you are. He begins in verses 1 through 3 where Paul describes our former condition. You have a former condition. This is who we were when we were left to ourselves. This is who we were by nature. Paul summarizes our former condition in verse 1. And you were dead. There are three terrible things for us to see here regarding our former condition, and the first and summarizing one is this, you were dead. He goes on to explain this deadness. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Those are two different things, technically. A trespass is the crossing of a boundary, and a sin is a missing of the mark or falling short of a standard. So you were dead in the wrong that you did and the right that you didn't do, is what Paul is saying. To understand this death, we need to go back to the very beginning. We need to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, we find the, the very first man, Adam, and we find him alive. We find him alive to creation around him, and we find him alive to creator above him. We find the first man enjoying 
true, eternal, the way it is meant to be life. And that the way it is meant to be life is and was life in perfect fellowship with God. And there is Adam in Genesis chapter 2. He is alive. And then God, being God, gave him a command. Genesis 2, 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And most of us know what happened in Genesis chapter 3. Adam trespassed. He disobeyed God and he died. His body didn't die, at least not right away. But we might say that his soul died. His body was not immediately separated from his soul like it was when he physically died, but his soul in that moment, when he did exactly what God told him not to do, what happened was exactly what God said would happen. His soul was separated from God. There was now enmity between man and God. Man was cursed. There was a separation, and there would be physical death and eternal punishment. And of course, that was not just an Adam problem. This was not an isolated incident, because we're told that Adam was in that garden representing us. Adam was in the garden as a head of humanity. He represented you and me, and he did exactly what you and I would have done. Which is why Paul says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. And so we, just like our great father Adam, we enter the world spiritually dead. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 58.3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. We don't become spiritually dead at some point in our life. We are born spiritually dead. 
which is why Ecclesiastes 9.3 describes us this way. The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. We were dead. We had no inclination toward God. We had no desire to please God. We were blind to his glory. We were deaf to his testimonies. We were unaware of his working in our life like a corpse. We were totally unresponsive to God. It was to us as if God did not exist. In verses 2 and 3, Paul goes on to describe how we walked, that is, how we lived in this deadness. So he describes next a second terrible reality, and that is that we were enslaved to sin. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, and now verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. This describes the way that we lived. And I used the term enslaved to sin because I think that captures Paul's point here. Back when we were dead, we did not follow God. Rather, we followed the world, the devil, and the flesh. Following the course of the world, Paul said in verse 2. That means that we followed the ways of a world that is indifferent to God. Our Worldly pursuits, they were primary, and they were in the place of pursuing God's glory. Not only that, following the prince of the air, Paul said next. That is a title that Paul gives to the devil. And we are told the devil is now at work in the son's of disobedience, and he was at work in us back when we were dead in our sin. And then verse 3, Paul reminds us that we once were just like everyone else. We were among them. We were among the sons of disobedience. And when we were, we lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. 
Our flesh describes that natural inclination to sin. Our self-centered human nature. Paul said in Romans 9, Romans 7, 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. So you see, we gladly followed the ways of the world, the devil himself, and our own sinful desires within us. We were enslaved to sin. And then there is one more thing that Paul says to describe our former condition. We were dead. We were enslaved to sin, and so thirdly, we stood before God condemned. Last part of verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. God's wrath is not like man's wrath. It is not unpredictable. It's not capricious. It's not uncontrolled. John Stott defined God's wrath this way. It is God's personal, righteous, Constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. When left to ourselves, by our very nature and choice, we were just like the rest of mankind. And we stood, albeit ignorantly, awaiting our eternal sentence of God's wrath. For many, including those of you who are here today and are not Christians, Verses 1 through 3 are not a description of who you once were. They are a summary of who you are today. It is also in our nature to deny this. It is in our nature to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. To see and to read that we were or are dead or enslaved to sin and therefore condemned before God. No one, of course, wants to believe this. It seems extreme to us. It seems like an overreaction. You may doubt if you're here today and you're not a Christian that verses 1 through 3 speaks accurately of yourself. And I would encourage you 
the way Charles Spurgeon would when he said, he who doubts human depravity had better begin to study himself. Do you know and have you learned how sinful you are and how desperate your situation is before a holy and perfect God? That concludes Paul's concise description of who we were. We were not merely indifferent to God. We were not merely disinterested in God. We were not merely uncertain about God. We were dead. There is no hope for a dead person, is there? Those of you who have lost people that you loved to death, You held out maybe hope to a point that they wouldn't die, but then came their death. And you had no choice but to accept it. There was no cure available. There was no way to bring them back from the dead. It was final It was over. When we were dead, our condition was one of total hopelessness. And it was one of total helplessness. There was nothing that we could do. There was nothing anyone else could do. We were dead. There was nothing a parent could do. There was nothing a teacher could do. There was nothing a pastor could do. There was nothing an evangelist could do. We were dead. But God. Those are the two next words. Verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The verses ahead, verses 4 through 10, describe our current condition, Christians. This is who we are because God has intervened. This is who we have become by grace. And Paul expounds two things in these verses. 
what God has done and why he has done it. So first, what God has done. Read it again with me. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us live together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what has God done? He has saved us. Two times Paul interjects this phrase once we just read it in verse 5 and we'll see later in verse 8 the same exact phrase by grace you have been saved. What is the point of what Paul is saying? By grace you have been saved. If we look closely Paul describes our salvation in three successive steps, doesn't he? First, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. That's the first thing that needs to happen when you're dead. He made us alive. Second, verse 6, and raised us up with him, that is, Jesus And then third, the end of verse 6, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Note that God has done with us, according to chapter 1, verse 20, exactly what he did with Christ. He has made us alive, that is resurrection. He has raised us up, that is the ascension of Christ. And he has seated us in the heavenly places, that is, theologically speaking, the session of Christ. What has happened to Jesus Christ has happened to us. Jesus Christ was dead, but God raised and exalted him. And you also were dead, but God has raised and exalted you with Christ, one commentator wrote. We have been made alive, Paul says, together with Christ. And look back up at verse 4. At the very beginning of verse 4, It's really important to note that verse 4 does not say, but you. It does not say that you were dead in your trespasses and sin, following the course of the world, following the devil, carrying out the desires of your flesh, but you, because of your great love for God, when you heard the word of the gospel, you believed it and you put your faith in. In Christ, it does not say this. And everything that I just said 
is true. You do have great love for God, don't you, Christian? You did hear the gospel. You did believe the gospel. You did put your faith in Christ, but you are not the actor in verses 4 through 6. God is the actor. You do love God. You did hear the gospel. You did believe the good news. You did put your faith in Christ. But your faith is not the but. Your faith is not the turning point in the story. The grace of God is the turning point in your story. Remember, you were dead. But God made you alive. Now second, why has God done it? That is what God has done, but now let's look in these verses because Paul has a lot to say about it. Why has God done this? Why has God saved us? He is not obligated He's not constrained. There's no force that is outside of God that pressures him to do anything. So why has God saved us? And we might think of other ways that God could have saved us. Why has God saved us in this way? Well, look with me. After Paul's description of what God has done, in verses 4 through 6, verse 7 begins with the words, so that, which means that the why is about to be revealed. Those two words, so that, means that purpose is next. Verse 7, so that. God has made us alive in Christ. God has saved us so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Our salvation showcases the grace of God. Do you remember what God's overarching purpose is in all things? That he might in all things display his glory and be praised. The ESV Study Bible says that this verse, verse 7 of chapter 2, answers the question of why God lavished such love upon his people, so that they will marvel for all of eternity over the incredible kindness and love of God. It will take all of eternity to fathom God's love, and those who are saved will never plumb the depths of it. We are these testifying 
trophies of the grace of God. Now, the only thing, humanly speaking, that could screw up God's glory here is us taking some credit for our salvation. Which explains why Paul says what he says in verses 8 through 10, where he makes crystal clear that our testimony is in no way a reflection of our greatness, but of God's greatness. I mean, it is over the top, the lengths to which Paul goes in verses 8 through 10, as if he hadn't already been clear, to make it absolutely clear, no doubt in anyone's mind, that you had nothing to do with your salvation. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Look back at the words that he used in those verses. By grace. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. You have been saved through faith, and that is grace from God. That is undeserved favor. He goes on, it is, did you get it? It is not of your own doing. You didn't initiate this. You didn't do anything to accomplish this. It is not of your own doing. Did you get it yet? He goes on, it is a gift of God. This is not compensation. This is not you did this, I'll do this. This is not conditional. This is a gift from God. He goes on, it is not the result of works. It's not that you did any good thing, including faith. It's not that you did anything good and now as a result, God has saved you. He goes on, we are God's workmanship. We are God's workmanship. He says it even more clearly, we have been created in Christ. You cannot create yourself. We have been created in Christ. What is Paul's loud point? Your salvation, it is all of grace. In conclusion, this means that your salvation, Christian, It is a 
work of God. The theologians like to say it is monergistic. It is not synergistic. There's no synergy going on here. You did not cooperate with God. You were dead. You were not sick. You were dead. And you had, please hear this, you had nothing to do with your salvation. And whatever might pop in your mind right now, I just want you as best you can to put a big red X over it and say to yourself again, looking at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, that as a Christian, you had nothing to do with your salvation. If you're not a Christian here this morning, that might just harden your heart. And there is a strange way because I don't think I should feel this way and my knowledge isn't what it should be and my love for God isn't what it should be that that pains me. But I know some of you will hear these truths about God and it will harden your heart. And it'll make you hate God even more than you hated him when you came in here today. There may be some of you, you're also here today and you're not a professing Christian And when you hear that there is nothing you can do and you have nothing to do with salvation and even the Christians who are here and around you that they had nothing to do with their salvation, it discourages you because you long to be saved. And you've heard these words and you say to yourself that I believe that I am a sinner and I believe that I do need God's mercy and I do believe that the only way for me to be reconciled to God is through Jesus Christ and I long for God to be merciful to me. But now I hear that there's nothing that I can do to be saved. But I have good news for you. Because if that is how you are thinking this morning, then you are a Christian. God has made you alive. Because if you were still dead in your sin. You would not believe this good news. Your heart would not be soft. You wouldn't want to have anything to do with this God. 
But if you're softened by these truths and you believe them and you stand before God and say, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? God always, 100% of the time, answers that sincere question with a yes. Because you can't even ask that question unless you've been made alive in Christ. And so now what? Well, you join the ranks of the rest of us who might be here today and are Christians, and we've got to do exactly what God intends us to do, and that is to praise him. That's what Paul is doing. That's what Paul is up to. He's made it so clear over and over and over again. We have been created for the glory of God. And if God has saved you, then he has opened your eyes to see his glory. This should fill you with gratitude. This should fill you with thanksgiving. It should fill you with purpose. It should change everything. And so your response is to whether you are here on a Sunday morning or you are by yourself throughout the week, or you are with your family, is to over and over and over again, as much as you can, no matter what you're doing and while you're doing other things, in your heart to give glory and praise to God. Because he has saved you, and he has saved you by grace alone. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ has instructed us that one of the ways we would praise him is through communion. And that is just one of the reasons why this time is so important that we take every week. When we, in obedience to our Lord slow down together. We can only do this together as his adopted children and look at one another and look to him in gratitude that he has saved us, remembering that the price that was paid could not be higher. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 that we should consider this time significant when he wrote in verse 29, let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. While there is controversy in the church over what Paul is talking about specifically in those verses. It is very clear that this time is very serious and that we must do it thoughtfully. We'll have leaders up front to serve and we ask you to come forward through the center aisles and then take the bread and juice and return to your seat and please wait. And we'll take it together as a church family. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for all that you have done for us. 
And God, we thank you for making it so clear why you have done this. God, that what you have done is not an echo of our worth and our value. No, because what you have done is what makes us valuable. God, it has all been of your grace. And so we are here today, and we ask that you would help us even now to give you the honor that you deserve as we think about what you've just taught us or reminded us of. And that is that through Christ, though we were dead, that you made us alive to praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.